So I think most of you guys know, uh, Jen and I have a little three-year-old boy named Caleb. If you were here at service earlier, you would have seen him doing laps. He, uh, he called me at 10, well, like 9.55 and said, hey, daddy, do you want a donut? <laughs> I said, yeah, buddy, I do want a donut. So he brought me a chocolate donut. Um, but if, you, if you've known us at all, you know that having children hasn't been an easy thing for us. It's taken us some time. And so the result of that is being a father has been a super weighty thing for me. And a lot of times I, I sit around and when I have two minutes, I think about what advice will I give Caleb as he grows. And as I think about that, sometimes I get to the point where I, where I ask myself, if I had to boil all of life down to just one principle, what would it be? If I could only tell Caleb one last final thing, what would it be? So this morning, we're starting a a new sermon series, moving through the book of Proverbs. And as we do, we're coming to uh, a book that's really a similar thing. It's mostly written by King Solomon to his son. It's a book about a father's advice. As we go through it, one of the other things that we're coming to is probably the trickiest book in the Bible. So on the surface, it's filled with good advice about behavior, which means moralism is super accessible to it. On the flip side, it's also one of the books that the gospel is probably the least accessible. But if you do the work, if you dig way down deep into it, it's also one of the richest expressions of the gospel in the entire Bible. So this morning, we're going to do that. And as we move through the, the series in Proverbs, we're going to dig. Just going to be honest with you on the front end. At times, we're going to zoom all the way up to 30,000 feet. And at times, we're going to dig all the way down into Hebrew verb forms. Joe was laughing at me when I told him that. But uh, it's, one, it's one of those things. It's, it's, if something's not obvious on the surface, sometimes you need to do two things. Sometimes you need to take a step back and get perspective. And sometimes you've got to dig really deep down into the issue. So that's what we're going to do with the book of Proverbs. I'm just telling you that ahead of time because we're going to bob and weave and we're going to go up and down a little bit. So this morning, as we move into Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, the question we're going to be answering together is, if all of life hinged on just one principle, what would it be? I'll say it again. If all of life hinged on just one principle, what would it be? And so to answer that question, we're going to do two things. First thing we're going to do is, like I promised, we're going to take a step way back And we're going to look at the the purpose and meaning of the Old Testament, or what scholars call its theological center. After we've settled that, then we're going to pivot into Proverbs 1 and talk a little bit about the meaning and purpose of the book. So if you have a Bible with you or a phone, pull it out. We're going to hop around. Feel free to to track along. If not, uh, just try to keep up. Um, So first, the theological center of the Bible or of the Old Testament, what's its purpose? What's its meaning? So the first half of this thing that you have in your hand was the Old Testament is written over the course of about a thousand years. And the very last chapter of it was written about 2,500 years ago. So in a lot of ways, it feels uh, alien. It can feel remote, like someone from a different place in a different time wrote it. And that's because someone from a different place in a different time wrote it. (laughs) But Jesus himself says that it's authoritative. And then he goes on to say that not even the smallest part of a letter will pass away until everything in it is fulfilled. And then Paul goes on to tell us that it's breathed out by God and is useful for us. So as we come to a book like Proverbs, as we come to the Old Testament, on one hand, we're dealing with something that at times can feel remote, 
but on the other hand is imminently relevant. And so when we do that, we have to wrestle with the question, how should we understand it? How do we understand its, its purpose? And so a good way to do that, honestly, is just to look at the very beginning and the very end. So if you have your Bible, pull it out, flip with me to Genesis chapter one. I'm not gonna read it, but I'll let you look at it as we fly through it. Genesis one opens up with the spirit of God hovering over chaos. And then God himself speaks into that chaos and out of it comes creation and beauty and order. And then in the midst of that creation, he creates man, gives him the mandate to rule and have dominion on his behalf. And then as you get to Genesis chapter three, man decides to openly commit rebellion. They decide that they, they want independence and they're gonna go it alone. And the result of that is they collapse into uh, curse, futility, and ultimately death. But if you have your Bibles and you look at Genesis 3.15, right in the midst of the announcement of the curse, right in the midst of what uh, God says is about to happen, we find this really interesting verse. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, talking to the serpent who deceived man, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, right in the very beginning of the scriptures, God promises a snake crusher. He promises one who's gonna come and redeem the line of Adam and rescue them from the deception of the snake. Then if you flip to the very end to Malachi chapter four, we're gonna take a look at the very last two verses ever written in the Old Testament. So flip with me there if you got it. By the time you get to Malachi 4, uh, the people of God have grown, they've become a nation, but at this point they've been taken into exile. The rescuer hasn't come and they're feeling like maybe we've been abandoned. Maybe we're without hope. Maybe we misunderstood the promise. In the very last two verses, Micah 4, Verse five and six, God re-promises that a great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. And it says that this day is a person. And it says when he comes, he'll turn the hearts of fathers and the children. See, right at the very end of the Old Testament, God re-promises the coming of one who's gonna rescue. And so in between Genesis one to three and Malachi four, the beginning and the end, the Old Testament is primarily doing two things. First thing it's doing is it's tracking the seed of the woman. Generation after generation, they're looking for the one who is supposed to come and rescue them. That's what all the genealogies are about. That's what all those really hard to pronounce names are about. They're looking for one who was promised to come. And then as they're doing that, a second thing is happening. The Old Testament's giving us signs to point to who that person is so that when he comes, we're able to recognize him. So on this side of it, we understand that person to come as Jesus. That Jesus is the one that God promised. He's the seed of Eve who would rescue, uh, not just the nation of Israel, but humanity. And so what I wanna begin with this morning, just as background, is that the theological center of the Old Testament is Jesus. The meaning of the Old Testament is Jesus, and its purpose for existing is to point us to him. All right. I told you we were gonna zoom way up to 30,000 feet. That was the whole Testament in four minutes. Um, so flip with me now to Proverbs 1, verses one to seven. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, this text will be included at the top of your sermon guide. Proverbs 1, 
verses one to seven, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So again, this morning, we're answering the question, if all of life hinged on just one principle, what would it be? Uh, Andrew Fletcher, he's an 18th century poet and politician. He's famous for this quote. He says, if you would let me write the songs of a nation, I care not who makes its laws. And his point is this, is that the songs that we sing are a window into the heartbeat of our culture. They express who we are. I was just joking with some of the guys this morning about a song I knew growing up that they didn't know. But the thing about songs is we also become what they express. And nowhere is this more true uh, than in children's songs. So I thought I'd sing one for you this morning. And then Caleb said, Daddy, I like songs better when you don't sing them. So I thought I'll just read it to you. Uh, the, the highest grossing Disney movie ever is the movie Frozen. And its anthem is this song, Let It Go. And I just wanted to slow down and read a couple of the lyrics to you. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. And I'll rise like the break of dawn. So every day, thousands of little boys and little girls, and if I'm completely honest, some adult pastors walk around singing this song. And the, the, the theme of this song is this. It said, if you want to have life, what you have to do is discover what's deep down inside of you cultivate it, and then let it out. Let me say that again. What the culture will tell you the key to life is, the way the culture will answer this question is you need to discover what's deep down inside of you, cultivate it, and let it out. In other words, you need to be true to yourself. And see, the thing about that is, um, on one hand, it seems to make a ton of sense. If you think about what we just read in Genesis 3, that man's deepest desire in his rebellion is to stand in independence, is to be separate from God and do his own thing and to be a peer with God. And so we get this advice in our heart that says, be true to yourself. But the danger of advice like that is that it puts us in our own self-orbit, right? We focus on our desires and we focus on our affections and we, we circle around them. And the result of that is that we lead ourselves into destruction and we consume the people around us. So think about um, a person who uh, has decided on a career that just connects with their heart, and in full pursuit of it, they end up abandoning their family and never really knowing their children. Or maybe you have uh, someone who is in a relationship called a marriage, and then they meet someone else who just connects with their heart. And the advice of being true to yourself leads them to abandon their commitments and pursue this other relationship. So the point I want you to see this morning is that the advice about being true to yourself 
is risky and it's dangerous. It leads us to the question, what does the Bible say about what's inside us? So flip with me back to Proverbs 1, verses 2 through 6. So right after opening up, uh, Solomon lays out his reasons for writing. And what he says is to know wisdom and instruction, and then he rattles off a list of attributes. And his point here is basically to say, I'm writing this book to bring about in you, my son, the thing that you need for life, right? He's basically saying, I'm, I'm, I want you to have life. And this is where it gets a little technical. What's really interesting about these uh, verses is not what Solomon says, but how he says it. Y'all ever been in one of those situations? It's like, it's, it's not the thing that you said, it's how you said it that made all the difference. Well, in Hebrew, uh, there's, set, depending on who you talk to, there's seven to nine uh, verb stems or verb paradigms. Basically what that means is that in Hebrew, instead of using a different word, you just change the way that you write the word to change the meaning. So most of the Bible, about 70% of it is written in one type of verb. It's called call. And what that means is that's if you're gonna go do some, something, there's a standard way to say that. It's like, um, uh, if you're going to go run or you're going to go eat or you're going to go whatever, then, then you use that one. There's this really rarely used uh, verb stem called hifiel. And the time that you use hifiel is not when you're going to do something or somebody else is going to do something, but when you're going to bring something about in somebody else. Right? I'll give you an example of that. So if, uh, if I'm going to die, naturally, the word that we use is die. But if you're going to cause me to die the word that we use is kill. That's what the hifiel is. It, it's the difference between you do, doing something and somebody else bringing something about in you, right? All right, so I told you we'd, get, we'd go way up. We'd also get technical. In Solomon's statement about why he's writing the book, he's using the hifiel. He's saying that I'm writing these things to bring them about in you, which leads us to the obvious question, why would they need to be brought about in his son? And the obvious answer is because they're not there already. See, Solomon's son, the royal son, doesn't have inside himself what it takes to have life. And the Bible goes on to say the same thing about all of us. If you've been doing the community Bible reading, you've read uh, Colossians 1 and 2 lately. And one of the things it says, it says that in our trespasses, we're dead. See, dead doesn't so much mean that uh, we're on death row, alive, awaiting the death penalty. What it means is that in our trespasses, we're incapable of life. That completely on our own, we don't have what it takes to have life. And then it goes on to talk about what's inside of us and it calls it uh, alienation and hostility. It says that not only is what's deep down inside of us not capable of life, it's actually hostile to the things of life, right? I'll give you an analogy of this. Uh, Caleb uh, is beginning to swim and he's pretty good. He can, uh, he's three and he can swim from one side of the pool to the other side. But as he gets to the middle of it, sometimes he starts to freak out. And as he starts to freak out, he starts to fight to breathe and he can get himself in a little bit of a jam. But it's fine because if Jen and I are there, all we have to do is just remind him, Caleb, you can swim. Stop trying to breathe and just swim, right? See, what Caleb has in that moment, what he needs is already deep down inside of him. He already knows how to swim. 
All we have to do is just remind him that it's there and then cut him loose to go do it. But that's not the way the Bible describes what's inside of us. We're not flailing around in the water and have forgotten that we can swim. The way the Bible describes us is dead, face down in the water, needing to be plucked up and resuscitated. This isn't super pleasant part of the text, but uh, the point is this. On the topic of what's inside you in your independence, our culture and the Bible could not be more diametrically opposed. Our culture says that everything you need for life is already inside of you. And what the Bible says is that the things that are inside of you on your own, apart from Christ, will lead you only to death. And so Solomon writes to his son, intending to bring about what's necessary for life. Which leads us to the question, who does Proverbs 1 point us to? If life has to come from outside of us, meaning it doesn't come from inside of us, but somebody has to create it in us, who does it point us to? So the the answer to that's pretty obvious on the surface, at least. Uh, Verse 1 points us towards Solomon, or at least points his son towards Solomon. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So why is that so important? See, in in, uh, Israel, uh, Solomon was not just a great king, but he was the pinnacle of wisdom. As he took the throne, God gave him the opportunity to ask for just one thing, and Solomon asked for the wisdom to rule the people well. And so God gave him a measure of that. And as a result, the kingdom prospered and flourished, but it also calls him the son of David. And see, the son of David is both a physical reality and a title. In a physical sense, he is actually, David is actually his father. But it's also a title in the sense that God had promised to David that a king was coming who would sit on his throne forever. See, by the time we get to David, they've been tracking the seed of the woman. Remember that? They've been promising that one was going to come who would rescue them. And by now the promise has made its way to David. And it's made its way to David's sons. And so the hearts of the people start to turn to Solomon and expect that all of this flourishing is about to lead to redemption. That the kingdom of God is about to break in. And you start, honestly, if you read it, you start to feel that way, right? It also said that Solomon wrote Proverbs. This sayings. And the reason he was known for his wisdom is that his sayings, man, they, they crossed a breadth of categories that no one else in the ancient world covered. I mean, he had something to say about everything, about how you breed animals, to how you raise children, to how you handle money, to how you rule kingdoms, right? His, he was sort of a, a bit of an expert on, on all of human behavior, right? But here's the issue with us accepting Proverbs 1.1 as pointing us to Solomon on the surface. Y'all ever been in one of those uh, relationships where you're full of hope? I mean, you're like committed to this person and things are going well and you've got good reason to be committed to them. And then all of a sudden they let you down. The relationship falls apart. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's an institution, but things just don't end up going the way you, you think they will. When that happens, it's painful. But one of the redemptive things that comes out of it is it points you 
with better clarity towards what you actually need. You learn something about what your heart really needs to have life. That's what happens with Solomon. See, by the time we get to the end of Solomon's reign, he's begun to amass wealth for himself. He's begun to amass wisdom or women for himself. And honestly, he started to worship the idols of the nations around him, the gods of the nations around him. And the result of that, the consequences, by the time you get to Solomon's son, the kingdom is torn away from Solomon. And then all of Solomon's Proverbs, everything that he knew, the whole breadth of things that he knew about weren't sufficient to actually create wisdom in Solomon. See, he knew a lot, but he wasn't actually able to live up to what he knew. He didn't have life in himself. And see, in America, maybe in a church like this, we're filled with our own Solomons. We're filled with those things that we look to for promise. Maybe it's uh, a company that promises us a great career and security. And at first things go well. You get promoted, you get raises, and then you become an inconvenience one day to the company and they let you go. Or maybe it's a friend whose advice you covet and every time you have an issue, you turn to them and they never lead you astray. And then one day their advice or your need for advice conflicts with something that's good for them and they give you bad advice. And then you take it and it ends up blowing up in your face. Or an obvious one, maybe your health. You know, when you're young, you're never sick. I mean, you get colds and stuff, but nothing ever really jams you up. And so by the time you reach your 30s, you think you're functionally invincible. Nothing's ever gonna happen to me. And then one day, eventually, your health lets you down. Maybe you're in an accident, maybe you get ill, but eventually that fails you. See, the point is this, is not to be depressing, but it's to say that just like Solomon, all the things that we put our hope in that aren't Christ, eventually they fail us. Eventually, they're not able to bring about the life that we need. So who does Proverbs 1.1 actually point us to? By the time we get to the New Testament, they've been tracking the seed of Jesus. I mean, the the seed of the woman, they've been uh, following the signs that are pointing to who's coming. And then we get to Matthew and it tells us two things. It tells us that Jesus is the greater Solomon. Speaking of himself, he says that the queen of Sheba came from all the way across to the other end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then he also says that we learn that he's the greater son of David. That in Revelation, we learn that his throne endures forever. In Hebrews 2, we learn that everything is in his control. And then by the time we get to his Proverbs or his parables, we meet this amazing storyteller who doesn't have so much something to say about our behavior as he does something about our heart. And Jesus's wisdom penetrates to the core of who we are and lays bare the the souls of men. See, the point in this is that Proverbs 1.1 on the surface reads like Solomon, but who it actually points you to is Jesus. And the reason that's so important is that if you don't have life in yourself, the person you need who's gonna create life in you is someone who's actually able to not just know wisdom, but bring it about. 
And you need someone whose rule and power and authority is gonna endure forever. Not someone who's able to bring it about for a moment and then have it abandoned, but who can run with you through all of life and into eternity. And then ultimately you need someone who won't just address your behavior, but who can cut to the core of who you are, to your heart, to the place that death is and actually bring about life. See, one of my, uh, my favorite verses lately is Romans 4, 17. And it's speaking about Jesus uh, and his posture towards us and what Abraham believed about the Lord. And what it says is that the Lord is the one who calls into existence the things that don't exist and that he brings life out of death. So what I want you to hear this morning is that uh, not only do you not have or do we not have life in ourselves, but the scriptures don't point us to our own Solomons. They point us to Jesus. And the really good news of that is that his deep down desire is to draw you to him, himself, reconcile you, and bring about new life in you. So it leads us to, obviously, the question, how does Jesus do this? How does he actually set about creating new life where there was death or calling into existence the things that don't exist? And that takes us to verse seven, which is the answer to if all of life hinged on just one principle, what would it be? So uh, Robert Frost embodied the situation of uh, verse seven when he penned his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Thought I'd read it to you this morning. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then I took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. See, by the time we come to the reality that we don't have life in ourselves and the scriptures point us to Jesus, in verse seven, it culminates by presenting two roads. And the road that we end up walking down makes all the difference. So as we're answering the question, if all of life hinged on just one principle, what would it be? I'm gonna argue for you this morning that the principle is which road you walk down. So the first road, it's the second half of verse seven. It says that fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, uh, something that you should know about uh, the Hebrew there is um, that word instruction, it's actually uh, the Hebrew word for discipline. It's where we get the word discipleship. 
See, if you know anything about discipleship, it's about uh, committing yourself to be led and shepherded and shaped by somebody else. And we've already been talking about how in our desire for independence, fools despise that. We don't want someone else to have control of our lives. What we want is what's deep down inside of us to come out, right? And so what the text says on the surface is that the first road is commitment to your own independence. That's another way of saying being true to yourself. Figure out what's deep down inside of you, cultivate it and let it out. And it says that that posture is despising discipleship. But then it presents a second road. And praise the Lord that it does. Uh, If you're reading with me, it says the main road, the road that um, Solomon is advocating and the one that the scriptures are pointing us to is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, as we read this, uh, anyone who is tracking Uh, with the Old Testament, hearing it as it's written would recognize a couple of things. That word beginning, it's in Hebrew, it's the word reshit. It's actually the very, very first word in the whole entire Bible. And it's the name for Genesis, you know, the book. And so the point here is, um, as they would have read this, they wouldn't have read that the 101 of wisdom or the 101 of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. They would have read the place that it's created the place that it's brought about. And then the two other things you should notice is uh, the terms fear of the Lord. See, in, in, in English, we have this phrase, uh, put the fear of God in them. Y'all know that phrase? When do you use it? You use the fear of God when you want someone to, to, to get in line, when you want to bring about moral reform or change of behavior. You say, put the fear of God in them. There's actually good reasons for that. The, the generic word for God in Hebrew is Elohim. It's, if you're just thinking about God in general, when you talk about the fear of God, that means uh, the fear of the divine and you better get your act right and avoid uh, judgment, avoid retribution, avoid penalty. But that's not the word that Solomon uses here. So what's interesting is the word Lord is the personal covenant name Yahweh. It says that it's not the fear of God that creates wisdom, but it's personal relationship with the Lord that creates wisdom. And the word for fear isn't terror. It means reverence. It means the acknowledgement that someone is greater than you. And it's the type of reverence that leads to joy when you meet this person. I, I, I'm not, I won't, I'm not going to take a side politically when I say this, but my mom loves Donald Trump and she met him one day. And I'll tell you what, the joy that that woman had when she met Donald Trump was incredible. I mean, it is full on reverence. And that is what the word fear is talking about here is the, is the, the, the acknowledgement that somebody weightier, more important than you is in the room. See what verse seven says is that King Jesus, the one who all of the cosmos hold together in, invites you into personal relationship. 
And that the beginning of wisdom is accepting that relationship, is acknowledging that you don't have life in yourself, but the king of the universe is here to create life in you. See, what it's saying here is that the culture of being true to yourself, if that's a lie, then the truth is relationship with Jesus. And that leads us to the final point. What kind of relationship does Jesus invite us into? Again, I told you we were gonna be um, a little technical, going up and down. Uh, That second road, that road of the fools that's presented in Hebrew, it's what in Hebrew is called parallelism. It's stated as a way to describe the first thing. And the reason that it says that fools despise discipline or discipleship And the reason that comes right after the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge is because it's saying covenant relationship with Jesus means discipleship. Say it again. Covenant relationship with Jesus means discipleship. See, what it doesn't mean is uh, necessarily emotions. It certainly doesn't mean uh, casual What it means is this. It means that uh, Jesus is allowed to have his way with your career. It means longing for him to have his way with your parenting. It means desiring for him to have his way with your marriage. It means praying for him to have his way with your family. See, what the scriptures say is that where life comes from, where it's created is inside a relationship of discipleship with King Jesus. So we looked this morning at how Proverbs 1 demonstrates that we have a gap, that we don't have life in ourselves, that the only thing that's in us is in ourselves is death. But then rather than pointing us to Solomon, it points us to King Jesus, who cuts to the heart of who we are, who's actually able to bring about life, not just know about it, and whose throne endures forever. And then as it does that, it summons us into covenant relationship where everything, every part of who we are, we long for him to have control over. We long for him to speak into and create life in. So what the scriptures say is that the one principle that all of life hinges on is whether you're in a relationship of discipleship with King Jesus. And so the question I wanna leave you with this morning is, will you despise him or will you respond to him? Let's pray. King Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the one who pursued us It's the word of your gospel that created and is creating your church. And it's your life and your word that brings about life in us. And so we pray for your grace to enable us to respond to you. And Jesus, we confess that uh, you want all of who we are, not just what we're willing to give you, and that you're determined to bring that about, that you're determined to return our hearts 
in our lives, in our minds, in the whole of who we are, in the whole of this creation to yourself. And so we pray for your grace to respond to you. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your work in us that brings about faith, that brings about regeneration. We thank you for your work of wedding us to Jesus. And Father, we are grateful that your plan from the beginning of time was to knit us together in Christ. And so this morning, as we move into our weeks, we pray that you would give us hearts that long for your discipleship. We pray that you would give us hearts that long for how you're moving. And rather than focusing on ourself, focus on uh, what you have to say about us and for us. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.